Welcome everyone to another Unsafe Space episode. I am your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined as always by the bad mama Gemma, Carrie Smith. Carrie, say hello to everyone. Hi, Carter. Hi, everyone. Uh, Carrie and I had a discussion about abortion the other day, somewhat unplanned, I guess kind of planned, but not really super well thought out. And, oh, I guess I'm supposed to say to, to subscribe to our YouTube channel so Carrie doesn't yell at me later. Um, anyway, we had a discussion about abortion and we thought, hey, wouldn't it be good to bring someone in who is more of an expert here, has studied it, talks about the ethics of abortion, uh, has better reasoned and deeper arguments about the issues there. And fortunately for us, we ended up finding Kyle Blanchett. Kyle teaches Introduction to Philosophy and Introduction to Ethics at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And specifically, he addresses the ethics of abortion. He's currently wrapping up his PhD in philosophy and abstentia at the University of Rochester. At the popular level, uh, he's written for the National Review and the Washington Examiner on topics such as the effectiveness of pro-life laws and reducing the rate of abortion, as well as broader issues about how to justify abortion restrictions. He hosts the YouTube channel Consistency Please, which we'll provide a link to in the show notes. And you can, file, you can follow him on Twitter at Kyle, that's K-Y-L-E underscore P-L-Z. Kyle, please. K-L-K-Y-L-E underscore P-L-Z. Uh, that's his Twitter handle. So Kyle, welcome to Unsafe Space. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. This should be a lot of fun. I'm excited to talk about this stuff. So <laughs> cool. we're excited to have you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. I know you're probably busy uh, finishing a PhD, having a podcast, and I don't know how much personal information you want to get, but you've, you've got a life. And uh, it must got be- a couple of couple of kids. And yeah, I'm back and forth between everything. So yeah, you and I, you and I exchanged some emails before the show about how you would break down, how you break down the discussion of abortion. And I think it's important because there's a lot of messy things in the argument back and forth, the public argument. And you suggested a, a, a cleaner way to, to divide this argument up. Can you walk through that a little bit and tell us how you approach this subject? Sure. Um, when I teach on this, I usually begin the entire discussion by um, distinguishing three questions that are often melded together or conflated. Uh, you know, when you get around the Thanksgiving table and you're debating abortion, people will go back and forth between these three different questions as if they're the same question. Um, the first question I think is, especially in the American context, is what does the Constitution say about abortion, if anything at all? Does the Constitution guarantee a right to an abortion? That's, that's a legal question. That's a question about constitutional interpretation. It's not at all a moral question, so it's not one that I'm particularly qualified to to weigh in on. I mean, there aren't like there aren't ethical experts in general that can give you all the right answers, but I, you know, I'm trained to at least think about those sorts of questions. Um, but with the legal questions, I have my opinions, but I want to separate the legal question. You know, what does the Constitution guarantee or not guarantee from two other questions that are actually more ethical? The second question is. Um, should abortion be illegal or should abortion be legal? Now that is, that sort of bridges the gap between legal philosophy and ethical and ethical philosophy. Because um, it's, it's a should question. It's what laws ought to be in place. So if it turns out that the constitution doesn't guarantee access to an abortion, you could still ask, 
should it guarantee this? Should it actually say this? And those aren't the same questions. Sometimes people want to find, want to answer their should questions with the first question in the constitution. They try to find something in there because they want it to be in there. Um, but there, it's just two different questions, what it actually says and what it ought to say. Right. Yep. Um, and then the third question is, is abortion ever morally permissible or not? Is it always morally wrong? Is it sometimes morally okay? That's the most straightforwardly ethical question. And, um, it's connect. These three, three questions aren't unrelated, right? Um, how you feel about abortion ethically will determine what you think the laws should say. Those two things will. There's a relationship between those two questions, but they're they're still distinct, and we should separate them out if we're going to have a clear discussion about this issue, and isolate all the different questions before we ask how they actually relate to each other. So that's how I break down all the questions surrounding abortion, at least in our American context, when I when I teach in this subject. I'm not a constitutional scholar, but if I recall, I don't think murder is addressed in the Constitution. It's really the Constitution is an agreement between states, not mm. it, not uh, not a list of laws. I guess the the question would be, uh, what does the Constitution allow the states to do? Um, right. Does it, and what is, and um, what does it forbid it from doing? I suppose right. that's that's how I guess it connects up with the Constitution. That's yeah, right. yeah. So let's let's dive into I think the most challenging and most contentious and most difficult, I think, question of all of these, which is your third category there, is abortion ever ethically justifiable or morally acceptable? I see both sides. I used to be on one side. Uh, then I was on the complete opposite side. Now I'm actually kind of in the middle a little bit somewhere. So I, I see both sides do this. Both sides just frame the conversation in a way that makes the other side look like uh, either horrible murderers or, uh, you know, backwards, crazy people who, you know, hate women. Yeah. How, how do we go about looking at this from a more, in an attempt to be more objective? So I think anyone who is arguing in good faith will concede that there's you're balancing two sets of interests here. You're balancing um, two morally relevant factors, um, the rights of the mother and purport, purported rights of the fetus or the unborn life. Um, so I think it's actually easier to address this from the pro-choice side first to see how they argue for their position and then go back and, and look at the pro-life side because there's, there's, there's really there's really two strategies, strategies you can take if you're pro-choice and there's basically one you take if you're, if you're pro-life. Um, so if you're pro-choice, you're going to try to argue one of two things. Uh, the first thing you could argue is uh, that the fetus or the embryo or the unborn life has little to no moral status, right? It's either right. because it's not a human being or it's not a person and you think personhood is required for moral status. However, you fill out what personhood is, it's very controversial. Yeah. Um, and if you can make that case, then given that women, we all agree that women have bodily autonomy rights just in general, then the, the case for abortion rights is pretty straightforward. Right? It's, just, it's just a very clear species of, of bodily rights. Having an abortion is not an ethically complicated thing. Um, if there's even decent reasons to have one, it should be allowed, basically. So it's a pretty, pretty quick case to abortion rights in that case, or to uh, abortion being ethically justifiable, and then you can go down the road there to get to abortion rights in the law. The second strategy is to grant the pro-life premise that the fetus actually has rights, right? either similar to or comparable to us. 
But nevertheless, uh, the uh, bodily rights override those in some circumstances or all circumstances, right? So that's a little bit harder of a case to make because a lot of people think when, once you grant the first premise, you can't actually make the case that bodily rights could ever override that. But that's the second strategy you can take. Um, and so when you talk to people who are trying to argue for the ethical justifiability of abortion, you'll see them going one way or the other. You'll see them saying the fetus isn't a person, doesn't have a moral status, so straightforwardly it's ethically justifiable. Or you'll see them granting the pro-life premise that it does have a high moral status, but nevertheless, it can still be ethically justified for such and such reasons. So those are the two that, strategies. That's interesting because that's always been, that second one has been the one that as a pro-choice person that I've more of like gravitated towards because I do feel like it's, morally wrong but i don't feel that it should be illegal in all cases is that right is that would i fall into that second group then if i believe it's morally you could so you could um that's going from the ethical question to the legal question which is why it's okay. so hard to to, to to discuss this like or to, to keep things sort of straight um you can uh, let me see what's the best way to to, to describe this i would say that fits most naturally with that legal position mm -hmm. right because um because you're, you're granting that the fetus has a high moral status, but you're saying it could be ethically justified in circum certain circumstances, or you want to say it should be legal, e despite the fact that it's, that it's immoral. You could say that. So it's most naturally tied to that legal position, um, I would say. Yeah. So when you talk about, I'm going to put the legal stuff aside for just a second and just talk about the moral implications there. In that case that Carrie just brought up, the second, the second category, where you're granting that there's some moral status to a fetus, are you... If, if you do that, it seems to me, as a layperson, that you really are then confining yourself to emergency ethics. It's like, well, if it has moral status, uh, then there's no reason to do it unless there's some emergency like balance situation where the mom's life is at stake or whatever, because you could always argue, at least, I guess this breaks down into a few things. You could argue that in the late term, she will be allowed to give birth to the, the fetus to get it out of her care, but killing it will be a step too far because you've granted it some moral status. And the only way that you could then argue that you could kill it would be some sort of emergency ethical situation where you're kind of saying, well, there's the life that, you know, we're balancing two lives. And those situations are always messy. And I'm not sure, I, to me, they're, they're, they're uninteresting from a, they're uninteresting because they they will only be interesting once we've solved the broader issue and then we can worry right. about emergencies. Um, but, but, I, but that's what, not the way I view it though, Carter. Oh, how do you, how do you view it? No, no. Yeah. That's not the way I view it. Uh, I do agree with that is the strategy, I guess I employ or the argument. That's the way I think of it most often is that second way, but it's not about emergencies. It's about, I do believe that the, I do believe the fetus is a person. I believe it's an unborn baby, but I believe that the right to the mom to control her body and make decisions, her bodily autonomy supersedes any right to life of the fetus. The tricky thing with doing that in, in normal and non-emergency cases is that when you talk about um, a right to the bodily autonomy, it's a negative right, right? It's a right to interfered with die the state if you believe the state has a right to do anything at least has has the right to has the, the obligation to interfere with your ability to uh, violate that to interfere with someone's bodily autonomy in order to protect someone's negative right to life right so the tricky thing with that position is if you grant the fetus has a full moral status um doesn't that seem to outweigh 
uh, a negative right against the government or someone else to stop you from ending that life. I guess that's the tricky thing on the legal side of it. Uh, if you if you take a, a sort of a broad a broad pro choice legal p- position, um, if that makes sense. Moral okay. position seems shaky to me. If you're going to say, well, let's get back to that. Uh, yeah, someone's someone's right to autonomy, their bodily autonomy trumps someone else's right to life. Right. Seems, so that seems a little bit of a shaky argument. So traditionally, the most famous pro-choice article is um, in defense of abortion by judith jarvis thompson um if you're if you ever want to if you want to read up on some of this stuff she does take this line she does grant that the fetus is a person but she has all these sort of fancy thought experiments to try to show that there are some circumstances in which nevertheless it would actually be ethically justifiable not that it should be legal right separate question but that it's actually she would agree uh would be cases in which abortion would at least be at least should be legal but probably maybe even would be ethically justifiable um her famous violinist case for instance imagine you're 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 kidnapped um and uh in the middle of night you're kidnapped the society of music lovers has this famous violinist who's dying of a kidney disease they sort of forcibly hook him up to you so that he can use your your uh your cardiovascular system to heal him of this disease if you unplug the person will die uh the, then the, the question question is are you permitted to actually unplug in this case um, obviously that's supposed to be have you for their life you're permitted to unplug um, and she has even more fanciful um, thought experiments having to do with case of life and the mother and she actually has one having to do with contraception failure as well which is really interesting she thinks if you try to uh, use contraception and it fails you have a right to terminate in that case as well morally speaking so you're right that um, if you grant that the fetus is a person usually you only get to um, justify the edge cases. It's harder to say, okay, the fetus is a person and therefore in all cases, abortion is morally okay. Now you still might want to make the case that it ought to be legal in a lot of circumstances, which is a separate issue, but it's hard to make the moral case, uh, a general moral l- license to abort if you're granting that, that initial pro-life premise, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing. I mean, there's a lot that's packed in there, right? When you think about the kidney situation, it's like, okay, yeah, but you didn't cause the person to need you like you're not responsible for the the violinist needing you whereas if you're a parent you are responsible for that even if it was a mistake right Right. so um we don't say well i was driving and i didn't intend to hit anyone but i hit them therefore you can't charge me with manslaughter it's like well i get that it was a mistake but you still did it and so I would think that the contraceptive argument wouldn't hold because you would say, well, you may have intended to not get pregnant, but you did. Question, question. What if you're driving and you don't intend to, but you hit that violin player? (laughs) And the violin player is your responsibility because you hit him with your car and then they hook the violin player up to your body. Oh, oh, I see. You hit the violin (laughs) player, then they hook him up to your body. Yes. Uh, that's, uh, That's an interesting one. Uh, well, so I would argue probably yeah. you are obligated to keep him plugged into your body because you're you are the one who initiated force against him unintentionally, and you need to make restitution. And if that means helping him out, I, so yeah. So originally, the violinist case was put forward as, as as being analogous to rape and nothing else. There are people who use it to try to argue for as as a general uh, a general argument for abortion being acceptable, but. It, it breaks down in some of the ways you're saying in, in the general case, because there's more voluntariness involved and um, it's not forced on you like it is in the case of rape. She does have a different thought experiment for contraception failure, which is even more fantastical. I could, I could, 
I could run by you if you if you were still talking about the ethical question, which is which yeah, is no, I want to keep talking about it. So I okay. please do, but I, I do I just I want to stop for just a moment and pause on rape. Um, sure. If you're granting status to a fetus in some way, then the origins of that fetus seem to not should I don't understand how they're relevant. Sure. That is the standard pro-life response is, look, the, 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 the way that a, a fetus is brought about is, is irrelevant to the moral status of the fetus. And that's true, I think. I think that everyone ought to, ought to agree with that. But um, you still might think that's not all the ethically relevant factors that have to be brought out. You could agree with that and say, I'm not saying the fetus has less status because it got brought about this way. But because this dependence is forced on me, I'm morally permitted to break that dependence. And there's a question here of whether abortion is actually letting die or killing that really connects up with this as well, obviously. Sure. But um, I mean, just imagine that somebody kidnaps you, puts you on a desert island with a newborn baby that's not your own, and um, you're the only one who can feed it by breastfeeding. The question is, um, are you morally required to do that, given that you were forced into a situation where this baby depends on you? I'm inclined to think you are, but I'm also inclined to think that uh, I couldn't punish you if you didn't. Um, so, so I think I have a middle though. position on that. But yeah. uh, so this this is I'm glad I'm talking to a philosopher about this because I want to understand. Actually, the word moral to me, I, there's two different moral categories to me, and I'm not actually sure how to even articulate this. Maybe you can help me. There's the morality of how I ought to live for myself, like what I, you know, what actions I take that only affect myself and and me. And then there's the morality of like how society ought to treat me. If I want to be part of a society, what can be expected of me? So for example, on a desert island, murder isn't wrong if I'm the only one there because there's no one to murder and it doesn't matter, right? So, but if I'm on a desert island with other people and I go to try and murder, well, uh, that cannot be universally applied. Um, it's, not, it's not a universally applicable principle at that point. And so you would expect that to society to say, well, you can't murder here if you want to be part of this society. The case you gave seems to be like, I don't know, you've got a dependent baby, but there's just the two of you. So what's, what would be your punishment if you didn't do it anyway? Like, there's no one there to punish you. So it kind of, it kind of matters, but maybe not. I, I don't know. So it sounds like you have kind of constructivist leanings when it comes to morality, at least the morality that's facing society. If there isn't a society to, to, to that encode certain punishments and certain rules, there really isn't anything that's wrong or right before other people. There may be things that are wrong or right for you, but there aren't things that are wrong or right in the society. Does that sound like... like yeah, I mean, I, I would guess I would say, uh, I think there are things that are wrong or right for, for my own life. Like it will be wrong, for example, to uh, intentionally... I don't know, drink myself to death or do things that are like, like, I, I, I think there's a moral code there and that there's morality. There's a whole discussion about how you should treat yourself. But, um, but I do think that in a society, when we talk about words like rights or what people should and shouldn't do, all we're really talking about is how should people react to certain behavior and what, what behavior should be acceptable in the group and what behavior should not be acceptable in the group. And that doesn't mean it's uh, subjective. Like I do think you can make a, a, an objective argument that murder should be wrong in the group. Yes, but I guess that's, I don't know if that's constructivist. I don't know what that is. 
I, I guess it could be a few different things. Um, you could distinguish here legal rights from moral rights. Um, some people think that there are no moral rights in, independent of legal rights. Their legal rights sort of create moral rights in a society. So if there wasn't a constitution, there wouldn't be any rights, right? Other people say there are natural moral rights that are protected by and referenced by documents like the constitution. They're already there given by God or they're just natural or something like that. Um, and then society can enforce those or not enforce those better or worse. Um, so there's a lot of like, I'm more in the second here. camp, just FYI on that one. But okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, I might be misunderstanding you, but yeah. Okay. No, that, that's okay. I, th I think I have a nuanced view, and this isn't about my view of morality. Let, let's get back to the, the, the issue uh, at hand here, which is, you know, we're talking about this case of pro-choice people who've granted that there are, they've said, okay, there there is some moral status to this fetus, and yet there are cases in which it's okay to terminate the fetus morally um, speaking right yeah is this do they say that any case or do they have like a balance about well these are the kinds of cases it's okay to and these are the kinds of cases it's not okay well thompson definitely does not think every case she thinks only only some cases so she doesn't think you can have an abortion to go on vacation uh, you know if, you, if it's like if you're you're seven months pregnant and you're like i want to go on vacation in a month and I, she, well, she won't allow that so she's not as liberal in that sense as a lot of people are today it's actually if you read her she's actually more strict than you might expect someone who calls themselves pro-choice would be on those issues for her it's it's only some cases not all cases and i don't know of anybody who says that the fetus has full moral status but it's moral in all cases although i do know some people who say it has full moral status and should be legal in more cases than it is moral right. um yeah so but that's just so that's one strategy the other strategy of course is just to to deny that the fetus has the same kind of moral status that you and I have, or has a lesser moral status than you and I have, right? So there, there's, al there's also this position called gradualism, where the idea is that the fetus becomes more and more valuable as it grows. It, it starts off with some value, and the more uh, it gains abilities or whatever you think is morally relevant to value, it becomes more and more valuable, such that at, in a third trimester situation, it's pretty close to, if not the same, as as valuable as it would be outside of the womb, for instance. I know a lot of people take that position. So what that position would entail, it's kind of like a mixture of, of the two I gave you. Um, early on, the reasons wouldn't have to be very great to have an abortion, but later, later they would have to be great, morally speaking, to justify an abortion. So there's that kind of position as well. So you have those who say there's moral status, boom, it's there, it's 100%. And there are those who say kind of like, comes in slowly. Um, that's a, 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 like a sort of a, a middle position that you could take on the pro-choice side as well, morally can you, speaking. Can you like talk about this term moral status? Because yeah. frankly, I'm not sure what that, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know what moral status means. I know whether you have a right for me not to murder you or hurt you, but I don't know what moral status means generally. Yeah, a friend of mine is writing an entire dissertation on this question, so I probably won't be able to give you a nice, <laughs> clear answer that philosophers agree on. It's, it's sort of like a weasel word. It's sort of like the thing that gives someone, the thing that makes someone have dignity inherent in a human, um, that you and I have, right? The kind of rights that you and I have, um, the kind of value that you and I have. It's definitely a non-consequentialist idea. So typically speaking, the idea of moral status is, is supposed to be something we're supposed to respect, not just add in like like in the utilitarian calculus of, of costs and benefits as something special and different. That's sort of the idea. And yeah, usually it's taken to ground various rights. Uh, uh, it's usually the thing that explains why the rights are there. And um, that's pretty much the best gloss I can give on it without giving like a more specific theory about it. It's just, it's the thing that makes human beings, if you think human beings are different, uh, morally 
speaking than animals. It makes them a subject of moral consideration, like a high subject of moral consideration, something like that. Yeah. I, I got to be honest. It does sound like a little bit like a weasel word to me still, <laughs> but that, that's, you can go with fine. rights, I guess, if, if you want. Yeah. The, 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 whatever you, you, you might even think moral status is nothing more than just having the rights that you talked about. You could have kind of a, a reductionist view like that and not, not in a negative sense, but like, what is it to have moral status is to have the right to life. You could, you could have that view as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it would seem to me that, uh, so one thing we haven't really talked about, we haven't gotten to the pro-life side yet, but one, one thing that is in the argument often is this idea of humanness and like, well, it's a human and humans have rights. Right. Um, and and the, the argument is like, well, is it a human? When is it a human? Is it DNA? Is it blah, blah, blah? And, and almost the moral status thing you're talking about almost sounds, and the gradualist thing you're talking about almost sounds like it's like progressively human until some point. Um, but I've never really thought of rights that way. I've always thought of rights as um, really not tied to whether you're a human, but whether you are a, uh, a rational being that could possibly recognize rights in others and, and like be part of a society where we could have a discussion about rights. And that could be a weird alien that shows up tomorrow, or it could be a genetic anomaly where there's suddenly there's a monkey that wakes up one day and starts talking to us and says like, hey, I've just read the constitution. It's an interesting idea. And it looks like my other monkeys don't want to talk about it. Like, okay, suddenly that entity has rights in a way that I, I would think matters, right? Yeah. So um, let's see, how can I organize my thoughts on this? So it sounds like you think moral status is closely tied to something like moral agency, like the ability to have discussions like this or rational agency, the, the, the ability to think about why we act, uh, set our own sort of set our own behavioral laws, discuss with other people. And if someone is, if, if an ent entity like that, human or not, it has the same kind of rights that you and I have, whether it's an alien or a human being. And it's is not that a human being that does it. No, um, in fact, it is very weird to think that just being human is the, is the thing that, that does it. Um, that being a member of the species Homo sapiens is, what, is, is the only thing that can give you rights. It would be very weird if aliens came down, had the same capacities you had, but they weren't homo sapiens, we could just treat them like slaves, right? That'd be a very weird position to have. Um, uh, but it does tie moral status, which is what we're talking about here, with certain kinds of capacities that usually are associated with like rational agency. Yep. Um, you, and you, that's, that right there, if you want to segue into the sort of second pro-choice position, which is to say that the fetus doesn't have these kinds of rights, that's the basis for saying that usually. It's like, well, look, um, it doesn't, uh, a fetus, whether it's conscious or not conscious, you know, depending upon uh, how far along it is, even if it's conscious, it's not going to have the same kind of capacities you and I have to discuss this. Um, so usually that's like wrapped up in the concept of personhood, right? So if, so there could be non-human persons, there are human persons, but a fetus is a human non-person is usually the idea. Um, right. So it doesn't have the rights you and I have. Um, there are some interesting implications of that, but that's, that's the strategy that they, that so they I, yeah. I actually understand that. And I could, I could get behind it, except for that it seems if I take that to its logical conclusion, it fails my sanity test, which is, well, a five-year-old can't do this, so yep. uh, we can murder kids. And that fails my litmus test for, for what feels, I'll be honest, like what feels okay. <laughs> and so that's why I'm like, I, I don't like that argument because I don't know where to distinguish between a, let's even just say a two-year-old and 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 an eight-month-old fetus well what you're what you're picking up on is something that people who take this line actually frankly admit 
they usually say my position licenses infanticide uh, just as much as it licenses abortion because a, a one, two, three-year-old baby is no more of a moral agent, no more of a person in this robust sense uh, than a fetus is. So they actually bite this bullet. It's what we call it biting the bullet in philosophy. It's sort of a consequence they just accept. Uh, whereas other people like myself think that that's just a reductio of the position. If your position leads there, you, you sort of took a wrong turn at Albuquerque and you need to go back and, and look at what you did wrong yeah. at the beginning. Um, yeah. But th that, that's, the, that's the difficulty with that position though. If you take a personhood view of value, like a rational agency view of value, then you have to worry about, um, you have to worry about licensing things that you otherwise think can't possibly be okay. Um, and that's what pushes people away from that position sometimes. So, so that's yeah. why that, that I don't have, I don't take that position as a pro-choice person. And again, to go back to that, the second position, which is that I believe it's immoral, but, but I believe the woman's right to bodily autonomy, let's say generally, not in all cases, because my position is also changing, which Carter and I talked about. I don't actually know where I stand on certain specifics now. I'm still pro-choice, but I'm pro-choice with a lot more restrictions than I used to be. But anyway, the position that I've historically taken, though, as a pro-choice person has been, it's morally wrong, but it should not be illegal because the woman's right to bodily autonomy supersedes the fetus' right to life. And that's simply because it, it's a human living inside of another human. You're living inside of her body. It's, it, for me, it was always like a, it was a practical position to take because um, in that, in that thought experiment of the violinist who's hooked up to your body, I think you should get to decide to pull the plug and say, are you saying moral or legal? Cause it seems like you're actually taking the pro-life moral position and I then am. you're disconnecting it from the legal position. I am. Okay. Which makes me pro-life and pro-choice, which I know people find confusing. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's, it's, it is coherent if you're pro-life on the ethical question. This is why it's helpful to distinguish these, but pro-choice on the legal question. Now, this, obviously, there might be some tensions there to try to iron out, but that's not like it, what you're saying is incoherent, right? That you're pro-life in one sense and pro-choice in a different sense. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's the same way, and I gave this example to Carter during our, our convoluted talk, but I used to be vegetarian, I'm no longer, by the way, I'm changing on that too. <laughs> but uh, I used to be vegetarian and I was like, I, the way I would explain it the same way I used to explain that, which was like, well, I'm pro-life pro when it comes to ending an animal's life to eat them. Uh, I don't want to, but, but I'm also pro-choice in that you should be able to eat meat. You know, I'm not going to be saying that should be illegal for everyone. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the, the question is whether there's a kind of, irresolvable tension in that kind of position. And I'm not saying there is, but I get that's the question someone like that would have to face. It's like, okay, how bad are you saying it is? Are you saying it's as bad as killing like a newborn, for instance? And if you are, wouldn't you also have to be okay with that? Now, what you, what you brought up was, it was interesting. You said, well, there is a difference here. The difference is that it depends on your body pre-viability. And yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Um, there, that obviously is, that changes the ethical situation between like a newborn and a non-newborn. Obviously, newborns are still dependent, but not in the same sense, not in the sense that they require your body, at least with current technology to live. And so you might think that um, that generates certain kind of, certain special kind of bodily autonomy rights, or it just changes the situation where your rights can override the right, the right to life. Um, yeah, I mean... But yeah, this is definitely going to the to the, to the legal side of things. Um, we can totally talk about that. If Sorry, you want. I, I know I go there. It's okay, it's okay. Yeah. 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 Before we do the legal stuff, though, can we talk about the? You mentioned briefly the technological. Yeah. Um, like where we are technologically, 
And it seems to me that you could make an argument that uh, you could, obviously you could make the argument that it, it's, uh, doesn't have any rights until some cognitive point, which is beyond the age of two or whatever it is, right? Fine, you could have that, you could bite the bullet there. Uh, you, could, you could make an argument that the fetus has moral value, but it's outweighed by the, the mom's rights to her own body. But if you make an argument that the fetus doesn't have moral value until it's, until it's born, it, that seems to me like a clearly broken from a philosophical standpoint because philosophy should not rely on the current state of technology. And a hundred years from now, someone will be conceived in a Petri dish, never have a mother, and grow from the Petri dish, having never been dependent in the way that we think of like being a fetus, having never been in that state ever, never be in a uterus. And at that point, we still then have to struggle with the question of like, well, when is it not dependent anymore? Because it's dependent on the doctor from day one, and it's dependent all the way up until, you know, in some cases, uh, after 18, depending on how, uh, how independent kids are, right? So yeah, that seems like a, a faulty kind of moral ground to be having an argument about. Yeah, sticking with the issue of um, not how it complicates the bodily rights stuff, but sticking with the moral status thing. The idea that birth, premature or regular or whatever, um, or on-time birth, confers personhood or confers moral status is very hard to defend, I think. Um, and some people make fun of this by saying, well, it's just you're making the vaginal canal special. It can confer personhood on people, right? So, so that then if, if there's the whole joke, if it's a C-section, it's not a person, right? Um, but like, it is, it's very hard to... It's, <laughs> It's that would really make me. To... That would make me an unperson. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's <laughs> I knew it. Meme. It's like it's like this alien baby. Yeah, um, I do think philosophically speaking, it doesn't make any sense to make dependence the thing or independence the thing that makes you morally valuable. Um, you could think dependence matters morally. That's a separate thing. Uh, and uh, but to, to, to think that being independent, especially since it varies with with time and with technology, that's the thing that changes the stat. Also, there, I, if I'm not mistaken, it, there are differences along racial lines in terms of viability as well. So it's like oh. some races are, are persons before other races, and it has all these weird like. Oh, I think you're right. The development uh, like development times are slightly different. Right. Yeah. And, and if you're different parts of the world and again, again, as technology changes, that cannot be what makes some, somebody have full moral status. That, that position then, does not really make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you would lose moral status then when you got old. Yeah. I guess you would. Right. Cause if you're, if you're on life support, you're, you're no longer a person. It's kind of a bummer. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but maybe that argument could hold if you're, if you're making the pro choice argument that, uh, there's some moral status, but it's outweighed by other factors. And then technology, then, then the technological development could matter because it's like, well, what's the sacrifice I have to make in order to like, then, then you're balancing scales in a very gray area and then technology matters in some way. It would change the ethical calculus without changing the value of the fetus. Yeah. Right. By, by changing the, de the, de the dependence variable. Yeah, That's exactly. A way better way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So should we talk about the, sorry, Carrie, do you want to talk more about this side or do we want to jump into pro-life side? Because I want to understand the pro-life side as well in their arguments. I do want to jump into the pro-life side. Maybe this will lead us there because I, I did just have one more comment, which is this, the technology that you're talking about or the, the, the fact that kids are, that 
the fetus is viable at a much earlier stage now. And depending on what part of the world they live in and what access to, to technology they have, um, that is part of the reason that my mind has been changed. There's a lot of different reasons, but that might be part of the reason because, you know, I used to, used to feel like, well, as long as that body is dependent on living within your body, your rights supersede that, that entity that's within you, that human that's within you. But now it's like, well, if you get to a certain point, it's like, I don't, you know, I want the right to my body. I don't want, you know, I want to abort because I don't, my rights supersede. Well, it's like, well, then why not, if that, if that fetus is now viable, why not allow it the chance to live outside of your womb? And you, you could take the position that um, you don't have a right to kill to end the life of the fetus. You have a, a right to be disconnected or to have it removed from you. And it, it, if it's pre-viable, it will die, right? But it, you might not want to call that a killing in the same sense as actively killing. And on, on, if, if you take this position, if there is technology available, you would be, maybe you could say that you're obligated to actually transfer it. You can't actually, you can't, you don't have a right to secure the death of the fetus. So that's, uh, I think, a more defensible pro-choice line, which is like, no, even Thompson thought this. You don't have a right to, to the death of your fetus. You have a right to have it removed from you. And there's a distinction yes. between the two things. Yeah. There is a distinction. That, that's a really yeah. good distinction. I think that that makes a lot more sense. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Now, it does require you to only allow abortions that aren't like active killing, that are more like separation. Like you might think, for instance, earlier abortions uh, where it basically induces a miscarriage is more like disconnecting, whereas later abortions where there's more like lethal injection type stuff and there's more dismembering that's more of an active killing. Um, So you might have to draw some lines there, but there's opening there for someone who wants to take that sort of position, I think. Well, and there would be an opportunity for for medical technology to say, okay, well, if if that's the rule, uh, we'll figure out a way to extract the fetus intact and transfer it to an incubator and, and that's okay. And so the procedure becomes rather than it's, it's more invasive, but rather than tearing up a, an eight-month-old and pulling it out part by part, you're probably doing something that looks more like a C-section, taking it out, putting it in an incubator, and closing everything back up. And Okay, you've been disconnected. It, but you know. Here's a suspicion that I have, and um, not to take us on a tangent, this is just a suspicion I have, but I think if you were to tell, there are a lot of women who are pro-choice or pro-abortion who if you were to tell them like at eight months, you can't kill the fetus, but we can remove the fetus and, you know, from you and, and save its life, but you're not, you know, and you're not required to be carrying the fetus anymore. That, that would not be okay with that. That would want the right to murder because they don't want that child out there. I suspect you're right in a lot of cases. And in fact, there was just an Atlantic article about how, about explaining why women tend to choose abortion over adoption, which is kind of like what you're talking about, because they don't like the idea of their, their baby being out there in the world. Um, so their position is different than yours then in that case. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah because there, there are, look, here's how, here's why I have that suspicion. Um, because, you, I mean, I've had a similar thought before about um, uh, egg donation. It, like when I was in college, I was in a tight spot financially, and I, you know, they'll you can get paid a lot as a college student um, who, and I, I, but then I was like, I don't think I want my child out there because I needed to pay parking tickets, <laughs> like. <laughs> 
yeah. <laughs> like it's a bad reason to donate my eggs. But yeah. but so if I extrapolate that though, I can definitely think I definitely think it's a it's a dark thought, but I think there are people who'd be like, no, that's not good enough. I want the ability to murder this I think that's yeah. normal. I don't think that's yep. even, uh, I don't think some people want that, Carrie. I think that would be the default position of most of the pro-choice. People. That's, but that's, anyway, I'm my personal. What, what do sad. you think, Kyle, is that, am I misrepresenting what the kind of the mainstream pro-choice people would, would say about that? Or So I, I try to differentiate uh, mainstream pro-choice leadership from your mainstream uh, rank and file pro-choicer. Um, I think mm. the mainstream leadership is, is very extreme on this. And so the ones that are the loudest are the ones that are pushing for all nine months for any reason and the government will pay for it at that type. Um, they probably would want you to be able to secure the death of the fetus. But I think a lot of, I don't know, I couldn't give you numbers, but I'd say a, a fair number of, of rank and file pro-choicers would say, no, it's more about bodily autonomy than ending the life. Um, but I could just be being a little bit too optimistic. I don't know. I just know there definitely is a difference between the leadership and rank and file. I don't know if it would, it would map along these lines, but yeah. That's a good point. I was imagining Melissa, Alyssa Milano in my head. So She probably wanted dead. She yeah. definitely wants to kill it. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, let, let's get to the pro-life side then. We, so those are the pro-choice arguments. What's the pro-life side? What, what's, their, what's the main argument there? So you might imagine what they're going to try to do is establish the moral status or the rights of the fetus. And then the, the idea is that it sort of just sort of follows from that, that it's generally, if not always, morally unacceptable to kill a fetus um, in the same way it would be unacceptable to kill a newborn or a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old. Um, and there are different ways to go about doing this. One way is the, to say that a fetus or an embryo or whatever is a person right? Um, it might strain your brain a little bit to imagine how that could be the case if you have a conception of personhood that's really robust and involves rational agency. Um, it doesn't seem like uh, a zygote is a person in that sense. Um, so that might be kind of a struggle. And some people kind of balk at pro-lifers when they say stuff like this, like a, like a fetus is a person or a zygote is a person because their, their idea of person is your idea of person, which is like a right. rational agent. Um, but that word person is also used differently by different people. Some people think personhood just is moral status, right? You're a person when you matter morally. Um, I think that's not quite right philosophically, but people do use it that way. So sometimes when they say a fetus is a person, that's what they mean. They don't mean it's a rational agent. They mean it matters morally. Um, all that aside, the point is that they want to establish that the fetus matters morally, like you and I matter in one way or another. Saying it's a person is one way to do it. But there are actually ways to do it that don't require saying it's a person, which is interesting. A lot of people think moral status does require personhood. This is a pretty common belief. Until you're a person, you don't have full rights. But it might turn out that you can have that kind of high moral status, not just if you're a moral agent, but if you're a moral patient as well. This is a distinction some people draw, subject of moral consideration, like a baby, for instance. A baby isn't, doesn't have the rational capacities you and I have. When I, when, I talk, when I teach on abortion, I often say uh, babies are dumber than adult pigs, right? Uh, if you want to compare uh, mental abilities, they can see five inches in front of their face. They're, just, they're basically fourth trimester fetuses if you really want to, want to look at it. I have two kids, so I'm allowed to say stuff like this. Um, you're not going to get a lot of mileage out of that, right? Um, but you still might want to say a, a baby matters just as much as you and I do, maybe even a little bit more, or at least deserves more, perfection, uh, more protection. Um, and then so now you have to find some basis for that that doesn't require personhood in the sense that you and I were talking about it before. And probably the most famous argument along these lines, there are a lot of arguments here, is the, is the Don Marquise line. He has an article, Why Abortion is Immoral by uh, Don Marquise. He argues that um, he tries to give a general account of what makes killing wrong, 
in general, uh, in like not just with fetuses, but in general, mm-hmm. his view is that once at least sufficient reason for a sufficient condition for killing to be wrong is that you're depriving that individual of a, of a valuable future of a future like ours is the way he describes it. Um, and that's why killing is so bad. It's not that life itself is valuable. It's that life is the precondition for experiencing anything of value. Basically, it's his view. So when you kill someone, it's seriously morally wrong because you're depriving them of that future of value. So then once he establishes that account of the wrongness of killing, then you have a question. Is there an individual in the womb that has a future of value, a future like ours? And pretty quickly, as long as you think, I mean, it depends on what you think about early, the early metaphysics of, of, uh, of conception and, and um, gestation, but either at conception or shortly thereafter, there is an enduring organism uh, that goes on to be the same organism that pops out at, in nine months that has a valuable future, has a future like ours. And so if it's wrong in the adult case, it's wrong in, in, the, um, in the fetus case as well. And so his conclusion is that it's seriously morally wrong. Um, he, he says it's prima facie seriously morally wrong, which is sort of a legal and a moral, moral term. That is to say, it could be overridden by really serious considerations, but they have to be really serious considerations, like the life of the mother, for instance, the abortion in that case. Um, so that's, that's probably one of the more famous pro-life arguments that don't, does, does not depend on um, saying that the fetus is a person. Um, and then the rest is supposed to fall from that. Like you can't, unless the, situ- unless the situation is very extreme, you can't justify it. So. One thing that fascinates me is that I, I view the pro-life crowd as generally more religious. I don't know if that's true, but I think it's almost it, certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so so yeah. I view them and I, you know, I'm an atheist. So uh, I, I kind of look at the outside from the outside. I'm like, all right. This, so they, they tend to be more religious, but mm-hmm. um, the Venn diagram of like pro-lifers and vegetarians, I don't think overlaps a whole lot. Um, but to me, they are, they're almost by default often using the justification that Peter Singer uses for um, vegetarianism, which is that uh, rights, he uses the word rights, but he says that rights come from the ability to suffer. And so he basically mm-hmm. ranks animals on their ability of suffering, which is okay to step on an ant because the ant's not really suffering much, but you, know, you can't kill a pig and eat bacon, um, which is a shame because it's delicious. Uh, you can't kill a pig and eat bacon because... The pig, as you mentioned before, pig's very intelligent, can suffer quite a lot. Uh, theoretically, doesn't necessarily need to suffer during death, but, but can. Um, but I, so, I mean, can you explain, like, are they, are they kind of taking that suffering as, as, a, as a precondition for having moral status, or is that, or are they not doing that at all? I think that's a different position. So this position doesn't require the individual to even have any conscious experience right now. Uh, it just has to be an individual that has a future in which they'll have the kinds of experiences you and I can have. That, that's, that's the position. Um, now, the nature of that future might connect up with what you said, right? Obviously, human beings are capable of, of much more value than I think a pig is capable of. So there's a connection between these two ideas, I think. But the, the position I just articulated doesn't require that right now you, you can experience those things. It just requires that in the future, you'll be able to have a future like ours, like a normal human adult. Right. Um, but, um, but you could re- you'd be reasonably expected to. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, obviously, uh, he, interestingly, his position doesn't rule out euthanasia. Euthanasia, he explicitly says this. If, if you have a situation where someone very likely is not going to have a valuable future, maybe they're going to die in a few days and they'll just be a, a life of pain. He doesn't, he doesn't quite endorse it, I don't think, but he says his, his, uh, his principle doesn't rule that out. Um, but obviously, it would rule it out for a typical fetus. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's quite interesting. I haven't, 
you said that's the main argument behind the pro-life. I haven't actually heard that argument before. That's really so, interesting. So it's the, I wouldn't say it's the main one in the popular uh, discussion. It's one of the most famous ones in the philosophical discussion. Um, in the popular discussion, you usually get things like, it's always wrong to intentionally kill a human being. A fetus is a human being. Therefore, it's always you know, wrong to intentionally kill a fetus. Um, that ties uh, moral status to being a human being. Now, there might be an interesting connection between those two things. It might be that being a human being gives you a future like ours, right? Maybe that's the connection or something else. Um, but they usually go right for the, well, no, it's a human being. It's a human organism. At least very early on, it's going to be the same one that pops out. And we generally think those have rights. So we should give the fetus rights as well. That's probably the most popular one um, in the popular discussion. And that one's not without merit either. I just, I wanted to give you the one, I guess, that I find the most persuasive and the one that really targets uh, and then that, that's probably the most famous one in the philosophical conversation. Uh, on the no, I, and I think that one, that one actually is real. It strikes me as, as pretty good. It's, it's a, I haven't thought about, I'd have to think more about using that definition of why murder is bad um, uh, a little bit more, more deeply, but I can follow the reasoning. And if murder is bad because you're essentially robbing value from future value from someone then, then I can see rewinding that and saying, well, you're robbing future value from this embryo and this embryo could potentially be very, have lots of value, right? Because it's a human embryo. Well, one cool thing about his position is that he just gives a sufficient condition for the wrongness of killing, not a necessary and sufficient condition. So it could be that killing is wrong for other reasons as well in other circumstances, but it's at least very wrong for this reason. And oh, good. That, that one's present. So it's not like a, a full, it's sometimes philosophers distinguish um, giving a sufficient condition with giving an account. Giving an account is giving necessary and sufficient conditions, all the stuff that goes into it, right? Where, versus giving a sufficient condition, one reason why killing is wrong. So it kind now, of has, has room for that, yeah. Interestingly, though, that argument only supports disconnection. Sorry, it only supports not killing. It doesn't support not allowing you to disconnect. Yeah, if you can draw a distinction between letting die and killing, that's and, and there actually are abortion procedures you can... Uh, accurately describe as letting die instead of killing, then yeah, I wouldn't touch on those. And so you'd have to make that case that there are, uh, as I kind of assumed before, there are some forms of abortion that actually aren't, don't involve killing. Um, but if you can make that case, then you're right. It wouldn't actually touch on the, on the disconnection stuff. It would only touch on the killing. So. I don't yeah. hear disconnection talked about at all, but I'm starting to warm up to this idea of disconnection because it solves some of these moral conundrums of like, well, yeah, maybe you're not obligated, but you certainly aren't, you don't have the right to kill. You just aren't obligated to be used in some yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, there obviously is some kind of difference between taking someone off a kind of life support, whether it's natural or artificial, and actively killing someone. Um, you might think that it's not a huge moral difference. You might even think it's, there's no moral difference. Some people argue there isn't any difference at all between those. But even if you think both of those are forms of killing, they're different kinds of killing, I think, for sure. If I went and premeditatively went and murdered someone, that would be first degree murder. But if I passively allowed someone to die, the worst I could get is maybe manslaughter. I mean, we definitely treat them differently. And we treat the same, the same thing with euthanasia. Like we, we allow, you can take people off life support, but we don't currently allow people to choose to kill themselves. 
right? That, that, that's, that's right. That, that would be, if you, can, if you can make the case, I'm not saying it's an easy case to make, but if you can make the case that taking someone, removing a, an embryo from the mother is the same as basically, it's, it's relevantly similar to taking someone off life support, then yeah, you can draw these kinds of analogies between those two. Um, one weird thing about that is if you go, we, we describe um, pulling someone off life support at their request as letting die, but if I were to go and sneak in and bash the, uh, the life support system when the person wasn't, wasn't looking, we call that as killing, which is kind of weird when you think about it. Um, well, we there, do the same with abortion if the... If the yes, you know, we do. Because yep. if, if, a, if a pregnant mother dies and the fetus also dies, you can be charged with double homicide, but you know, because the law treats it as a separate life and worthy of rights that you've then murdered. But if, but, but then if the mother chooses to abort, it's not murder. It's like very weird and arguably incoherent. Yeah. I don't understand that. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't seem to to track. Yeah. I would say so too. Unless you have a very weird view where it's only, it only has moral status if you want it, which I've actually heard some people argue. So wanting it being wanted gives you moral status. It's kind of nice, right? Because it gives you all the, all the results you want, right? So those who don't want abortions, it would be wrong for them to have them. Those who do, it wouldn't be wrong for them to have them. Probably not the right view, but a view that some people have wanted to be true at some point. So if you take a view that's similar to that, you're almost arguing that the fetus is property. Um, That, Right. You're almost arguing. I mean, not quite, but it seems like at least a lot of the pro-choice views is that the fetus is property. If you harm my property against my will, you're at fault. Uh, But if I harm my property, it's my property. I can do what I want with it. Right. Um, Yeah, it does fit with a lot of the language they use, I think. And maybe it even fits with the kinds of rights they want to give people and the, the way they treat it. Yeah. But the flip side of that is if it's property why is it not at all the father's property? Because they don't ever argue that the father should have any rights whatsoever. And whether, and further, not only that the father can't decide whether or not to terminate, but if, if it's brought to term, the father is forced to pay child support, whether or not he wanted to bring the baby to term. And if it's killed, but the father wanted it to drop to term, he has no rights there. So it's like property, but only her property. Yeah, I've heard some people be like, well, if you really think it's a, it's a, it's a valuable life, you should force fathers to pay child support. And my thoughts always, yeah, we probably should. Um, in fact, the Georgia law, if you, if you read into it, um, again, I'm not a legal scholar, but I try to read these bills and understand them as best as I can, actually force fathers to pay for medical bills. And after once it's made illegal, it would force them to pay for the medical bills in the pregnancy. My thoughts always, that makes perfect sense. Um, and it doesn't make sense to require that and not and not think it's it's valuable. That's that's very weird. Um, like the uh, if you say that it's not valuable or, the, or that the mother can do what she wants with it, it's weird to say, oh, but the father has to has to pay child support. Now, there's obviously an asymmetry here, right? Because the mother's carrying it and the father's not. So that's that's important here. Sure. But still, there's an issue of like, why is he on the hook? Right. That's that's weird. They're either both well, on the hook or neither of them are on the hook. Right. He gets the. The, he right. gets custody. So we already recognize there is some sense of, quote, ownership there, right? Yeah, it, it might not be cashed out in terms of ownership. It probably would be cast out in terms of custody. Um, but yeah, uh, so. One of the questions I have for you, since not only do you study this um, academically, but you do write about it in, in popular um, magazines and, and newspapers, what what sh- what's the conversation we should be having? Because it strikes me as w- one of the things that annoys me about the bor- abortion argument, frankly, is both sides seem to be like, it's obvious and easy and you suck. And right. to me, it is a very complex, I mean, maybe I may end up siding with one side or the other, but regardless, it's a pretty complex t- 
topic and to pretend like it's not complex at all and the other side is just you know, idiots seems like a, a problem. How would you change the discussion nationally? If you could wave a magic wand and get people to start talking about something else, how would you have them start even looking at this? And It's a really good question. Um, I guess I could float some ideas. Uh, the first thing is to get, get agreement on facts. And I use, I, that word is tricky, but um, there are some things that are controversial and there are some things that aren't controversial. And you should be able to set aside your ideology and be like, what's the stuff that I can just demonstrably prove about the nature of fetuses and what happens when laws are put in place and all, you know, um, all these sorts of things. Um, get clear on the facts first. Uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's what are a couple of facts that should be like, got people should get clear on that. You don't think are clear right now. Well, I would say um, a lot of the, a lot of the biological discussion around what's going on is, is based on a lot of ignorance. Like people, you'll hear people say things like, well, if you think that killing a zygote is wrong, why not sperm and, and eggs? And it's like, that's just biologically illiterate, right? Those two things aren't, aren't the same thing. Um, or like, um, when can a fetus feel pain? You'll see some pro-lifers say at nine or 10 weeks. And that's almost certainly not true, right? Almost certainly it's going to take to like 20 and 24 weeks to, to feel pain. So those sorts of facts and also things like do abortion. I, honestly, I think the fact that abortion laws reduce abortion rates is something that can be demonstrably established. Um, but there's, there are a lot of myths out there that that's just not true. Um, the whole, the whole thing about biology and people just saying things that aren't, um, that, that aren't good analogies. It's like here in Texas, a lot of people that I know thought it was very cool that they were introducing a bill to say that men couldn't masturbate or they had to, you know, because, oh, they're, they're killing innocent sperm. It's like, that is, it's, it's not even, it, you can't equate the two and, it, and it's dumb. <laughs> it's not cool. Yeah. It's dumb. It's, but it, I just it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like they're saying women can't menstruate. Exactly. But these people have either, they have no understanding of biology or they purposefully don't want to acknowledge that they're making a faulty argument anyway. And there was, a, there was recently, I think the, I think uh, um, the head of Planned Parenthood recently said there were thousands of people who died in the years leading up to Roe from illegal abortions and reason uh, gave their, and even Washington post debunked this and said, no, it wasn't that many. We we have better numbers than that. Those sorts of things are what I have in mind by like, look, look at, let's get the things down that we can agree on first. If we can't even do that, then there isn't really a whole lot of hope. And I think sometimes we, at least sometimes we can do that. Um, the second thing is respect. I mean, in my philosophy classes, I try to, I try to let's see what's the best way to put it. I try to complicate things for people, right? I try to, I try to, to make things see that they're not as simple as they thought they are not to give them despair, not to, to make them think that there aren't, there isn't a way to arrive at reasonable certainty about these things, but to get them to really have a kind of what I call intellectual empathy to understand why someone would think what they think. Um, give, give, put that in its best light, get inside their head and think about how they're weighing the reasons so you can understand it, learn more. And if you want to persuade them effectively persuade them as well, I think that's really important. Intellectual empathy is really important. Um, and then, I mean, getting into the philosophy of it, I think is really important as well. Um, being able to draw these kinds of distinctions can help us think clearly about this, about what's at stake, about how these considerations connect to one another. Uh, we won't agree, but at least we can be thinking clearly as we disagree. Um, and then the fact that there is disagreement, I think, is relevant to public policy. I might be a little bit, I mean, I am pro-life, but I might have a moderate streak that some pro-lifers wouldn't like. And one of, those, one of those moderate streaks that I have is that I think that you have to move along with public opinion. 
Um, you can't just go headlong ahead of public opinion and be like, okay, we're going to ban abortion from conception on, um, you know, damn the consequences. There's a few reasons why I think that's bad. But one reason I think that's bad is because sometimes I think that there is room for reasonable disagreement. That is to say, people can have different views and both be reasonable. And I think that things like the rape exception, for instance, are a case like this. I think reasonable people can disagree as to whether or not women who are raped uh, are allowed to terminate or not. Um, I have my own views on this, but I think that some people in good faith can disagree about this. And maybe that's a reason not to make it illegal. Just the fact that there is, there's room for reasonable disagreement. Um, that's a controversial thing, I think, to say, but I think that there's something to that. So I think all that to say, I think that the fact that there is reasonable disagreement is relevant to crafting public policy and, and that in a, in, a, in a pluralistic society, you can't just, I mean, if it was like 90% and 10%, I'd be more okay with being like, all right, we're going to make it, you know, we're going to make X illegal. But if it's like really split, um, I'd want to persuade the public first and get to a consensus before we move forward on that for a couple right. of reasons. One of which is just, I don't like overriding people's convictions when you can make a reasonable public case for their convictions, put it that way. And that's, that's subjective, but at least I think there's something, there's something to that. So. Well, certainly politics works much better when it's supported by the culture underlying it. And if you've got this contentious disagreement about particular policy and the law is encoding one of those things, um, it's, you know, I, I don't think that's a recipe for success generally. Um, and, and you get people arguing now, I, I just want to, two things you said, one, I want to ask about the rape example, because it's brought up all the time. And my understanding is it's actually very mm -hmm. few people actually ever get pregnant through rape. Like, do you know anything about this? I guess we could look it up, but I, off the top of your head, do you know anything about the likelihood that rape is the cause of a pregnancy? I know it's less than 1% or I'm almost positive it's less than 1% of, 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 of abortions. Um, as far as how often women get pregnant when they're raped, I'm pretty sure um, it's not a majority. Uh, it's not most, but I couldn't give you a more firm number. And you're right, it's brought up a lot almost to derail the discussion, right? Um, one of the issues with these exceptions is that people try to justify broad access with the exceptions, right? So you'll have you'll have, okay, so there, what about cases of rape, life, and the mother and incest? Okay, what if I take those off the table and I give you all of those? What if I say, we'll allow abortion in all those cases? And here's some other cases. Maybe you think that if the, if the fetus has a condition incompatible with life, it should also be permissible to terminate in that case. Maybe you think uh, if the mother's going to be paralyzed by having a pregnancy, she should be able to terminate. Suppose we grant all those extreme cases. Um, now, do you still think there should be abortion access? And if they say yes, the real issue isn't those cases. It's something deeper. They have a more broad commitment to abortion access that's not dependent on those exceptions. Right. Um, so we should separate arguments for broad abortion access and arguments for abortion access in extreme circumstances to get things clear, I think. One thing that seems noticeably absent in this discussion, but is present in politics, is is discussion of a heartbeat. There's been yeah. these heartbeat laws now, and I don't understand the justification by heartbeat being the the bright line. It's not something that we've talked about this entire time. What 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 are your thoughts on where is this coming from, and, and what's the rationale there? So I think very few pro-lifers will say having a heartbeat makes you have moral status, right? Or may even makes you human. That, that seems wrong, right? Um, I think what they're probably doing, the strategy is the fact that there is an organism there with a heartbeat is a sure sign 
that there's something like a, there's a human being, there's a human organism there, an enduring one that will grow and, and again will pop out nine months later. So it's not so much that um, it determines moral status or deter- determines humanness. It's that it's a sure sign that it's there. And it's harder to, to call it a clump of cells if it has functioning organs, right? If it has things that are actually doing things, cell differentiation and this kind of organization. So I think it's both a psychological strategy um, well, I think it's primarily a psychological strategy where it's like, well, look, or, or an epistemic strategy where you're trying to give a sure sign that there's life there. And it's, I think, and in fact, when you, when you poll people, when you tell them there's a heartbeat at whatever, they're more likely to actually support abortion restrictions than, than otherwise, because it's, it's harder to, it's just harder to dismiss it as a mere clump of cells, right? Obviously it's still very different than you and me and, and a newborn baby. And that's certainly true. And there are still issues here to discuss, but I think that's what's going on. It's like, well, it's got a heartbeat and it's like, doesn't that seem to indicate that there's an organism there, a human organism, a human being and ultrasounds have had a similar effect on people as well. I think, um, for instance, since ultrasounds have been more widely available, I think that the, where women are forced to have ultrasounds, the likelihood that they abort is much lower because they just see and very early ultrasounds, like four, six, seven weeks. Um, I think, I think that's, I think that's the reasoning behind it. It's not like a metaphysical thing. Uh, where it's like, hey, having a heartbeat is what does it. It's it's an epistemic thing. It's a well, that's a sure sign of life. If that makes sense. No, I think I think that makes sense. And you, and you're bringing up the ultrasound. It's a it's a, also just a, an emotional and psychologically compelling argument, right? Because not argument, but it's a it's something visceral. It's the same thing as why the pro life or sorry the pro choice people really get angry. It, Carrie and I talked about this previously. They really get angry if you show pictures of what a you know, third trimester abortion looks like and, and how it's performed because it's gross and horrifying and you have a, a visceral negative reaction and it becomes uh, much more difficult to dismiss that as a clump of cells when you see the reality of it. And so- um, And they do, they do a good job of sheltering pro-choice women from looking at any of the stuff. So they keep it an abstract thing. That's why they oppose- the laws that require you to see an ultrasound before you decide, or um, that's why they, they don't like you. I mean, I, for uh, the entirety of the time, most of the time I was pro-choice until very recently had never seen the images of a third, of a, of a third trimester abortion, of a late term abortion until recently. Like it's like, you just don't, you don't look at it because it helps keep it abstract. And I think if they actually believe, cause, it, cause a lot of pro-choice people in the pro-choice camp like to say, that um, they like to dismiss women who have abortions and then later regret it as if that's not something that happens. Well, every woman is different. There are going to be the women who shout their abortions, you know, like Sandra Bernhardt or whoever, (laughs) but there are also going to be women who do regret it. And um, you shouldn't be afraid. I don't think you should be afraid to let women see the facts of what they're doing before they decide because guess what? Maybe you'll weed out some of those women who are more likely to regret it down the road. It also but. doesn't seem very pro-woman to withhold information. Um, I thought, you know, if you want to give women the most autonomy they can have, the more information you have, the more autonomy you have. It's very weird to me to, to oppose that. I mean, they usually dismiss it as manipulation, but it's also manipulation to withhold it too. Don't yeah. you want to give them the information and have them decide? seems like to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So any... Um, you know, I know, I know you're pro-life. Do you want to take a moment to articulate your your particular pro-life position? Because I think it would be enlightening. I mean, I've enjoyed this discussion. I don't know if there's uh, something that we've missed, but I, I I definitely feel like we've missed what your 
particular viewpoint is. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would, as I said, describe myself as, as pro-life with a little bit of a moderate streak. Um, so I do think that abortion is, so starting with the moral side, I would say abortion is probably morally, morally wrong in all cases, except for life of the mother. Um, that's on the moral side though. Um, pretty much from, from conception on, I would say that I think it gets, it becomes more wrong later for a couple of reasons, but I think it's seriously wrong very early. Legally speaking, since that's, that's really where, where the conversation uh, quickly goes to because nobody really cares if you think abortion is morally morally wrong and they're, they're only going to start caring if you want them to abide, abide by your moral code right legally speaking um i would i would start i would have a sort of a progressive approach here i think that late-term abortion should be basically banned at the federal level except for very serious cases like life of the mother and I would also allow it in cases of serious fetal anomaly, even though in that case, I think it would be immoral to do it. I would allow it legally because I can understand why someone would want a kind of euthanasia situation in that, in that kind of situation or a, a euthanasia um, access in that kind of situation. So federal ban on late term abortion. Um, and then I would want to I would want to curb it back at the state level, not at the federal level, because I think imposing it from the federal from the from from the top down like that is what we basically had with Roe v. Wade and it caused 30, 40, 50 years of polarization and we're here now and things are as polarized as they ever were in abortion. So I don't support banning federally um, any closer to conception at that point. I want it to be left to the states. I think that's the best way to work it out democratically. And then if it was my state, yeah, I would want to have, uh, I, want, I would want to bring it closer and closer to around conception. I'm, I'm a little bit wary of going all the way back to conception only because I think there are some metaphysical issues um, early on as to whether you have an enduring organism in the first month or so. I think you very clearly have an enduring organism about a month into it, but I think there's some, there's some haziness before that. And because there's some reasonable haziness, unless, it, I, unless I get cleared up on it or people in general get cleared up on it, I wouldn't be comfortable pushing that far to the beginning. But I'd get pretty close, I think. However, I would always have exceptions for life of the mother in case the pregnancy would um, disable the mother. I think that even though I think it would be wrong in that case as well to have an abortion, I think that it would be wrong for the state to force you to give birth if you're going to, for instance, become paralyzed. Um, and I, th I would also support, I think, a rape exception, which makes me, which makes me, uh, I wouldn't say outside the mainstream of the pro-life position. I think if you look at the pro-life uh, leadership, they might make you believe that most people, most pro-lifers don't support a rape exception. But if you look at the numbers, about 59% do. Uh, and in fact, if you poll even like evangelicals, most of them believe there should be a rape, rape exception as well. So it's actually very small. It's, it's, it's more in the minority of people who believe there shouldn't be. So I probably want a rape exception. So even though I think it would be wrong in that case, I think it would be wrong for the state to force it in that case, but only for early abortions, not for later abortions. So only when abortion can sensibly just be described as um, removal or, or some kind of a letting die or a less active killing than the more later ones. So that's how I would go with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that... All that together, I think, is like that, that, that's, that's sort of my ethical framework. And the reasons why I think they're wrong is something along Marquise's lines there, um, uh, his, his, his kind of position. And legally, that's how I would piecemeal try to bring all the considerations together in terms of exceptions, morality, public opinion, and uh, long-term success for the pro-life movement. The other reason why you don't want to go for the jugular is because if you go for the jugular, you might have a backlash and people will, will push back again the other way. Um, so there's that as well. So marching towards life, basically, marching towards more life protection with all those caveats in place. That's probably where I am right now with all of this. So, And one thing that has not, didn't come up in your uh, description, hasn't come up all show, 
is religion. I mean, I guess I brought it up very briefly, but I assumed that a lot of the justification for pro-life arguments was based on religion, but I'm not hearing that at all. I'm not even hearing it from you. Yeah. So I am just full disclosure. I am a religious person, um, but I don't think there are religious arguments against abortion. Like you could say um, you have theological reasons via revelation to say there's a soul at conception or something like that. You can run those arguments. I don't think they're actually the best arguments against abortion. I think the best arguments are actually secular and, and philosophical in nature um, and that you can be a pure secularist and actually hold that abortion's wrong and should be mostly illegal for the same reasons that I generally hold that they're, it's wrong and should be generally illegal. Um, in fact, there are secular pro-life organizations out there. Secular pro-life is one of them and they're, they're awesome. Uh, they, they argue for it in, in pure, purely secular terms. I think it would actually also be inappropriate to enforce something for a religious reason on a, a secular public square. I don't think religion should be banned from the secular public square, but I think that if you're going to justify a law, you have to justify it publicly. And that's going to, that's going to be using premises that you're, everyone can share. And that's not going to be religious ones. I don't think. Um, yeah, there is that assumption that that's the case, but, um, and it may be true that religious people are, it may be true that a lot of pro-life activism is motivated by that, right? That's like an additional motivation, but the justification is a separate question. And I think that can be given in wholly non-religious terms. Yeah. Well, and you look as, as an outsider of religion, as an atheist, I think that, uh, the secular arguments are the most compelling, and I think it undermines a lot of the casual dismissal that uh, that that the pro-life movement gets from people who are secular because they just you know oh this is just crazy religion and like no it's not it's not religion it's there are logical secular arguments to why you might want to be more pro-life. I think it's like uh, I've heard Ben Shapiro say before, you know, like he's religious, but he's not using religious arguments because that's an appeal to authority that you don't necessarily respect. You know, you don't. And but I, but I do see um, in my circles, I see a couple different things when people argue about this that I thought are interesting. One is that pro-choicers do all seem to always assume that the pro-life people are religious. And um, I saw a recent back and forth online where someone insultingly mockingly said to the pro-life person like i don't worship your sky daddy which is a mocking way of saying you you believe in god and the person's like i'm an atheist i don't have a sky daddy <laughs> just for yeah. life like and yeah. then and uh that was kind of an interesting thing and then but an another thing i see this really blew me away in some of the recent arguments happening online is that People don't seem to, I've really enjoyed this discussion because it's been, you, you've been doing a great job of helping lay out like what the different positions are and make it understandable for people. I don't see that happen a lot. I just see people arguing from the extremes and um, they don't really try to understand a lot of times what the other person actually believes. They'd rather just throw up a straw man of what they believe. And so um, I was in some discussion with some people on the left and there was one adamantly pro-life woman in the in the conversation and she was very respectful she was very civil and she was simply stating her position and she was so piled on and and there was so much vitriol and i was thinking about it and i'm like you know i don't think they realize from from her point of view they support murder okay from their point of view she supports the oppression of women but from her point of view, they support murder, which is worse. <laughs> yeah. And she's not in there hurling vitriol at them, even though she thinks they support murder. I couldn't get over that distinction that like what you, what she thinks you guys are doing is morally worse than what you think she's doing. But 
you're the ones treating her like the scum of the earth and she's not treating you like a murderer and she's not calling you the names you're calling her. And it was just really kind of was eye opening. I don't, I'm, I'm just a, this is a tan- anecdotal tangent. No, that makes but, a lot of sense. I mean, that connects up with the intellectual empathy I was trying to talk, talk about. That's exactly yeah. what you have. Why would somebody think this? My wife often says, do you guys understand that both sides think that there are rights at stake? Both sides think that. And that has to be understood for it to really be productive, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a great point. And I love the concept of intellectual empathy. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Carrie, is there anything else that you want to ask? Or I, I feel like this has been a great productive discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. I like this. We need to have more uh, PhD people on. <laughs> I definitely come back. This is a lot of fun. I love doing this stuff. Yeah. Anything you want to add, Kyle, that, that you wish we had talked about and we didn't? Uh, it would be good maybe if we ever have this discussion again to talk about the connection between morality and illegality, because that's like the heart of the American debate. But you can't talk about that until we, you've talked about what we talked about today. So it made perfect sense to start where we started. Yeah. Um, there, and that has this wider question. implications, by the way, well, well beyond abortion. It does. Yeah, it, it totally does. The, the issue just is like, can you actually hold or is it coherent to hold that like abortion is morally, seriously morally wrong, but it should be legal and what are ways you can make those work? Um, because uh, that's like the, the old school democratic position, right? Safe, legal and rare. And there's all these critiques of that. Well, that doesn't actually make sense because if it should be, if it should be um, rare, then why would, would you want it to be legal? All right. There's, there's, there's just, there's, just a, there's, a, there's a tension in that position, maybe. And I think there are some interesting ways to try to resolve it. All that to say is just that's the next step in the discussion, right? Once you get the morality out there, it's like, okay, how does that connect with the legality? And like what you just said, that's not just with abortion, that's with everything. So, yeah. yeah. Well, great. This has been this has been awesome. As a reminder to everyone, you can follow Kyle at uh, at Kyle underscore PLZ on Twitter, and you can go to Consistency Please. We'll post the link to his YouTube channel uh, in the show notes. Um, Kyle, thank you once again for for coming. I really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you. Nice talking to you. (laughs) Nice talking to you too.